lesson on which tonight's teaching is based comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And here the Apostle Paul writes the following. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, get, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person even, Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. We're, as I mentioned earlier, we're in the the second week of our second core value at St. Marcus. The core value started out, first one is Christ first. Second core value is sacrificial love. And last week, what we did is we spent our time kind of contrasting the world's perception of love with the Bible's perception of love. The world, generally speaking today, espouses an idea of love that is largely a strong personal feeling, an emotion of attachment to somebody else. And you can tell that that's how we feel about love and that's uh, how we define love because you look at the expressions we have about love. We say things like, I think I'm falling in love with you or I'm falling in love with you or even simply, I'm in love with you. See, that is a non-committal state of strong emotion. That's very different from what the Bible says about love. The Bible talks about love as a volitional commitment to sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else ahead of self. In fact, sometimes, according to the Bible, you will suppress and fight many of your strong emotions for the sake of the other person's well-being. Last uh, week, we, Paul gave us the example of Cain and Abel. Actually, it was John last week who gave us the example of Cain and Abel. But Cain would love his brother if he would suppress the, the negative hatred mo- emotions that he had, uh, but was committed to loving him and putting his interest ahead of himself. But he couldn't do that. Love is not merely the emotion. It's volitional commitment to sacrifice for somebody else's good before me. And if it doesn't have cost to you, if it doesn't have sacrifice, if it doesn't have a radical reconfiguration of your plans for your future or a reconfiguration of your own self-interest, then according to the Bible, it's something, but it's not really love. How do I know that to be so true? Well, the the home base passage that we're looking to for this core value is the one we looked at last week from 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The, The definition statement in the Bible of what love is says it must contain a sacrifice and laying down of your life for the benefit of somebody else. Otherwise, what you have is something but it's not love. This week, we're actually taking it a step further. We're saying, look, it's not only the fact that it's not love unless there's sacrifice and cost attached to it. It's not godly love if you're loving people who are lovable. It's not exactly godly love if you're loving the people that you're supposed to love, the biological love and the deserving of love. 
uh, think about how God loves us. Not because we're lovable, but because despite the fact that we're undeserving. It's because of his inherent goodness. What would it look like if we could actually capture that kind of magic in the way we treat the world? That we love them not on the basis of how much they deserve love, but based on the, the other-focused, grace-based love that God has for us. That's what we're going to look at here tonight. And uh, I'm going to break it into two points just this evening. Number one, God's love for you is undeserved, which is another way of saying what we call grace. And number two, we want to ask ourselves really the question that we're going to say, the undeserved love that the world needs, are you capable of showing the world the love that it actually needs? The world already knows how to love the lovable. Are you capable of showing the world grace? That's different. Okay, so first of all, God's love for you is undeserved. And the key verse in this section really is the last verse that we read a moment ago. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it has everything that John said last week. There is no love unless there's sacrifice. He had to die for us. And that's not just the... Uh, laying down your life is not just the romantic notion of taking a bullet for somebody else. It's that, but it's laying down your life every day for somebody, putting their interest ahead of your own. Paul adds something. He said, what God's love is, what grace actually is, is it must be while somebody else is still a sinner, while they're still undeserving. See, before you and I ever had any inkling of worshiping God, or turning to God, or saying I'm sorry to God for anything that we've done, before any of that ever happened, God loved us. Despite our attitude, despite our motive, despite the fact that we were fighting against it, God chased us down and loved us. That is very different from how we typically love things. The world naturally knows how to show some love to the lovable. Uh, you can see this repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Jesus talks like this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Remember the tax collectors are like the, his go-to for like the worst possible people of the day. Are not even the reality TV stars loving the people that they're supposed to love? Do not, if you greet people who greet you, are you any better than the pagans? No. He says, he goes on to say and concludes, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what he's saying there is love the way your Father loves you. It's undeserved. The world understands deserved love. Don't do that. Well, do that, but do more than that. Show undeserved love. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy 5. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do you understand the comparison he's making? See, the non-believing world knows they're supposed to love their family. The non-believing world knows they're supposed to love their friends. The non-believing world loves the people who are deserving of their love. And Paul says it again right here at the end, verse 7. He says, very rarely will somebody die for a righteous person, though for a good, uh, a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. What does he mean? The bottom line is, it's easy to love people who are lovable. That's not distinctly Christian in any particular way, though. That's not supernatural. That's not spirit-filled. Yes, love those who deserve love, but don't only love those who deserve love. The pagan world, the non-believing world, knows exactly how to do that. Um, this is what I, I guess I would call it object-based love. That's what comes naturally to us. 
We love the things that do something for us. So, for instance, I love my dog. Why? She's adorable, for starters. Beyond that, though, she, she creates a lot of problems. Uh, why do I love her? Everybody else that I've ever met in my life doesn't like something about me. Everybody else wishes I was more perfect than what I actually am. Everybody else, I let down a little bit, I disappoint, and they're a little bit critical. Not my dog. All she wants to do is smell me a little, which I'm, I'm fine to acquiesce to that. And then she just wants to be with me and be in my presence. And she's just excited to be there. And it makes me feel so good because nobody else quite loves me like that. I love her because of the way that she makes me feel. She's good to me. I also love Diet Coke. You know why? There are very few things that you can enjoy the taste of that won't add pounds to your body. And so Diet Coke is one of those, and somebody, nutritionists will tell me that it shrinks my brain or whatever else. <laughs> I'm, per I'm perfectly happy to make that exchange, honestly, at this point. Uh, if it's not adding pounds, I'll drink it. Uh, but I can drink it, and it's no calories, but it tastes good. It makes me feel good at very little cost to me. I love it on the basis of its goodness. Uh, some of us love, we, you love Fridays. Why? Fridays do something for you. They bring, not for me, somebody, if you're a pastor, every day becomes kind of the same. Fridays used to do something for me. Uh, it was like, it brought the relief of the end of the week. And it allows you to exhale, and it allows you to relax, and so you're just so much more positive and easygoing. It objectively does something for you, and therefore you love it. Now the question is, is that why God loves you? Does God love you because he gets something from you? Does God love you because you are just so simply, irresistibly lovable? Of course not. Does he love you, though? Well, of course. How do you know? Well, anybody, suffice it to say, who goes to hell and back in order to be with you clearly loves you. Anybody who's willing to pay the costs for all of the crimes that you've ever committed must love you. Anybody who willfully at the cross got ripped apart from the arms of his father in the eternal relationship that was the perfect relationship just so he could extend to relationship with you must value you and love you. Uh, you know he loves you objectively because he laid down his life for you. Now, sometimes I'll actually get a little bit of pushback on this and people will say, is that that big of a deal because don't humans lay down their lives for people all the time? Not the same thing. There's a couple of different ways I can, I can respond to that. It's not the same thing. Uh, why? Just based on the magnitude of it. When Jesus lays down his life for us, consider that to another human laying down, uh, a human laying down a life for another human. Let's say you have a 40-year-old firefighter who goes into a building and takes somebody out, uh, and, and maybe, maybe, let's say, a 50-year-old. And they take them out of the building and they spare their life, but the firefighter dies in the process. How, what have they saved them, really? I'm not dismissing the act, but I'm contrasting it with Christ's work. If, they've, if the firefighter saved that person's life, uh, was the firefighter going to live longer than that? Yes. How much longer? A little bit. Maybe 30, 40, 50 years. He expedited his own death, and that's something. But it's not everything. And for that matter, he saved somebody until they inevitably die. Now, it's something, and it's important, but whoever he saved, guess what? 
that person's going to die too, eventually. He saved them for a little bit. How is that different from Jesus? Jesus was never on any trajectory to death. For his decision to die in our place was not just a decision to die for us, but it's a decision to die, period. That's different. And for that matter, when he dies for us, he doesn't just save us for a little bit, he switches us over from death to life. He saves us for all eternity. There's no possible comparison here. Jesus laid down his life, and that's the ultimate, that's, what is that? Why did he do it? If it's not because of our basic inherent goodness, what's the only other possible explanation? It's because of his inherent goodness. That is a subject-moved love. It's not a love that gives you something in return. At least that's not why you're doing it. It's not because of the goodness of the object. It's because of the goodness of the subject. Interestingly enough, in the Bible, there are four different words that are used in the Greek language for love. Okay? So it's different from in English. I can say things like, I love my dog, I love Diet Coke, and I love Fridays. And it's a very broad and loose use of the word. In the Bible, there's the word storge, which means an affection. And there's a word uh, philos, which means a friendship kind of love. And there's a word for love called eros, that means like an erotic or sexual uh, attraction kind of love. And then there's one more. It's called agape. It's a divine love. It's a charity. It's grace. And every time when the Bible talks about how God loves us, it always uses agape. He doesn't love us because we've earned it or it does things for him or he gets stuff out of it. He loves us undeservedly. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis, who I often will refer to, actually wrote a book called The Four Loves, defining a chapter on each of those, those different four words that are used in the Bible for love. And I actually, I went back and reread the chapter on charity, which is his word for agape or, or grace. Interestingly enough, uh, it's definitely not his best work, and he only uses the word grace in those 40 pages. He uses it once or twice. Uh, so I said, I've got to find something else more poetic that defines what grace really is. Sometimes I look to, to Lewis and he lets me down. So instead, I can turn to Bono. And Bono says, actually, it's at the end of the album in the early 2000s called All That You Can Leave Behind. And uh, Bono has some brilliant insights on Christianity. And here's the lyrics that he gives. It's, the song, by the way, isn't actually very good. It's the, it's the album that Beautiful Day is on. The, this, the song doesn't sound very good, but it's brilliant lyrics and it's a great statement on grace. He personifies her. He says, grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, she removes the stain. Grace, it's the name for a girl, it's also a thought that changed the world. She carries a pearl in perfect condition, what once was hurt, what once was friction, what left the mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. That's what grace is. When we were really ugly... And in our very worst, you don't need people to love you when you're lovable. You need somebody to love you when you're at your very worst. And that's exactly how God loves you. When you and I were totally ugly, he loved us and made us, his love made us beautiful. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Which brings me to the second point. Um, you've heard me say before that grace is the single most foreign substance that exists in the world. In fact, it didn't actually fully show up until Jesus arrived. It's also the, the, it's the substance that the world is starving for the most. 
undeserved love. Sometimes it's, it's very interesting. I'll hear people refer to Christianity in a way that, that almost kind of misshapes the essence of it. Sometimes people say things, maybe you have said before, things like, that's not very Christian, or they're not acting very Christian, or they're not being a very good Christian. And you know what they're saying at that point, right? What do they mean by that? They mean that person is not behaving very morally. Uh, is that really what is at the heart of what Christianity is? Moral performance? If that's the case, then I know a bunch of Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, Buddhists, and some secular irreligious people who are better Christians than some of the Christians that I know. Is moral performance the essence of Christianity? No. It's grace. Undeserved love. This, this C.S. Lewis actually got right. There was a, a meeting in the 1950s amongst various philosophers in England, and they were discerning what the difference in the world religions really was, and they said, can you actually find anything, any Christian tenet that isn't actually also found in the other religions of the world? And Lewis walked into the meeting kind of late, and he said, are you guys kidding me? It's grace. That's what's different. There's no other conception of undeserved love like this. Now the question is, what would it look like if your life was saturated not just with other various teachings of Christianity, but first and foremost, it's saturated with grace? I'll tell you what it'll look like. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit, the things that they seem like you can just naturally do them, not if you understand what grace is and that they're infused with grace. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. If you deconstruct those to understand that they all come from grace, you know what they mean? Let's do the math here real quick. You know what grace looks like in your relationships? It looks like a forgiveness to others who don't deserve it. You know what undeserved love in your Negative circumstances of life mean when the Apostle Paul talks, I, can, I have known the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Why? Because he understands he's pushing his grace into those negative circumstances. What does grace to your enemies mean? It means you find peace even when they don't deserve it. What does grace in your time mean for others? You're, you wait longer for them than they deserve. Grace in your time means patience. What is grace in your talent? You're not using it to self-glory, you're using it in service to others. What is grace in your position of privilege? Not, positive circumstance, not negative circumstances, but positive circumstances. You don't use it for your own good and you don't manipulate other people with that position of privilege, but you use it with gentleness. What does grace in your emotion look like? We mentioned this earlier. It looks like self-control. You suppress emotions even though sometimes they're strong and even though it feels very natural and good. You can just continue on. What does grace with your money look like? It looks like generosity. Grace with your self-awareness looks like humility. Grace with your conflicts looks like listening. Grace with your social interactions will involve some witnessing. What would your life look like if everything is infused with undeserved love? Love, according to the Bible, must be sacrificial. And if it's going to be a God type of love, it has to be undeserved. Um, I honestly think, look, if you, if you understand Jesus died in your place undeservedly to take care of your biggest need, your need of salvation, and that the Apostle Paul also says that if he gave us him, how will he not also along with him, the greatest gift, graciously give us all things? That God takes care of every single last one of your needs by grace, that will change you. And it will change the way you suffer. And here's what I mean. A lot of us, a lot of you, me too, suffer sometimes in a completely optional kind of way. 
All your insecurity, all your moodiness, all your anger, all your anxiety, all your depression, all that being weighed down and controlled by uh, holding grudges throughout life, every single one of those is optional. If every one of those comes from forgetting who I am and my identity as a redeemed child of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything comes from forgetting what grace actually is. If I know who I am in my relationship with God because of what Christ has done in his grace, see, look, it doesn't mean that, that means all that suffering that I experience, that anxiety, that depression, that hurt, that, that self-pity, that's self-inflicted wounds. That's self-inflicted suffering. Stop suffering that way. Now, that doesn't mean in a fallen world you won't suffer. It means when you suffer, make sure you do it like Jesus did. How does Jesus suffer? You notice what Paul says uh, next in our lesson here in verse 3. He says, we glory in our sufferings. He's not talking about I glory and wallowing in my self-pity. He's not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking about glory in the suffering of putting other people first. And he's saying, yeah, it hurts, but it's worth it. He says, I can do it because God has put his spirit inside of me. Jesus' spirit is also inside of you. And the goal of this fallen world is it's it's not simply to not suffer. It's to know that if and when you do have to suffer, suffer like Jesus Christ did. Suffer because you're so hard in putting other people ahead of yourself. Suffering, Suffering for others in that sense, it's almost like suffering for a 401k. If you, if you, when you start getting employed, and you have the option to do it like retirement investing, and you uh, are thinking, okay, I can put some money, and I probably should put some money into my retirement savings. When you realize how much that is, it kind of hurts. To get money taken away from you, it hurts. You have less money, that hurts, but it's not painful. Because you know it's going towards a greater good. Because you know it yields a huge dividend. Because you know it's a wise investment. When you suffer for other people, not just suffering from self-pity, when you suffer for other people, it's an investment in an eternal relationship. It's an investment in the glory of God. And therefore, don't just love people and don't just love lovable people, even though they need to be loved too. Find somebody who doesn't deserve your love and sacrifice for them. And then you'll start to understand God's love for you. And I want to share with you, I want to end here with a story it's one of the best illustrations I've heard in recent history uh, on what grace is, or at least as far as I'm concerned. It comes from a book called Proof by Timothy Paul Jones. Proof, uh, Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. And in the middle of the book, uh, Timothy Jones tells the story of his second daughter. His second daughter is adopted. She's eight years old. And um, the interesting twist to it is she had been previously adopted also. In other words, there was another family who had adopted her, and because she had such severe behavioral issues, they ended up saying, we can't do this anymore, and they let her go. And she got re-adopted. And uh, interestingly enough, Jones said that he, he had heard the story because the other family had lived in Florida, and every year they made an annual trip to Disney World. But the trip to Disney World was kind of based on the kids' performance in school and behavior and stuff like that. And this little girl, all the other biological children ended up being able to go and always on the trip. This little girl with the behavioral issues was never able to go. And uh, Jones, when he found out about that, he thought, oh, we, we, they didn't live near Florida, but he said, we need to, we need to figure this out. And uh, so they started to plan a trip for Disney World later on in that year. 
And he noticed something when they got closer to the trip. About a month out from the trip, her already really rough behavior started to spike and get worse. And she started to lie more, and she started to actually steal stuff, and she was saying very hurtful things toward her older sister at this point. And with about two weeks to go before the vacation was supposed to take place, uh, the dad brings this little eight-year-old girl on his lap, and uh, he, he says, do you know why I need to talk to you? And she says to him at that point, she says, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? She, she had failed to earn her way into the Magic Kingdom before. She knew what that was like. She knew what, was, what it was like to be able to, to forfeit that kind of privilege. And she was kind of, I mean, if you're going to psychoanalyze her, she might be testing this family out to see if they're going to operate the same kind of way that the prior one did. And he says to her, he said it was very tempting at that moment to say, yeah, if you don't get your act together, we're not going on this trip to Disney World. That's not what he says. He says, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? And she nodded. And then he said, are you part of this family? And she started crying, and she again nodded. And he said, well, there might be some consequences along the way, but you're part of this family, and we're not leaving you behind. And he goes on to say, you think, like, okay, maybe everything changes, and it turns out great. He said, no, this trip was brutal. Her behavior was worse and worse along the way, and there were many meltdowns in the process. And uh, he said, we finally got to the day. And it's not only just that her poor behavioral issues, but he said it was like typical overpriced, overhyped, overcrowded Disney World anyways. So you have that, plus you have the meltdowns along the way. But she got to the Magic Kingdom. And that night, he said, uh, there was a disposition change in her. He said she was exhausted from the meltdowns that day, but she was different moving forward. And he said that night, he gave her a hug, and they said their prayers together, and he asked her, how was your trip, honey, to the Magic Kingdom? And she responded, at least what he says she responded, is, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's not because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. See, that's grace. And Jones goes on. I'm just going to read what he says here at the end because I thought this is a great summary uh, from his book, a great statement on the concept of grace in Scripture. He says, Grace is not a favor that you can achieve by being good. It's the gift that you receive by being God's. Outrageous grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you've done nothing but give a middle finger flipped in the face of God to offer in return. It's a farmer paying a full day's wages to a crew of deadbeat laborers with only a single hour punched on their time cards. Uh, it's a man marrying an abandoned woman and then refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a disgusting cheater. It's the insanity of a shepherd who puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue a single lamb that's too stupid to stay with the flock. It's the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and robes to a young man who has squandered his inheritance on drunken binges with his fair-weather friends. It's a one-way love that calls you into the kingdom not because you've been good, but because God has chosen you and made you his own. And now he is chasing you to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child, and nothing in heaven or hell can ever stop him. That's God's grace to you, and that's a love that will actually give you life. And if you love people that way, it will bring life into the world. So find someone who doesn't deserve your love, sacrifice for them. 
Love them. And then you will start to understand God's love for you. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, if we had to be honest today, we would confess that throughout our lives and maybe even right now, the vast majority of the love that we've shown has been fairly easy love. It's been fairly deserved love. It's been fairly object-based loved, things that make us feel good. But we want our hearts to be transformed by your grace. We want to be able to show grace. That means we actually have to move into uh, situations and relationships uh, with people that don't deserve us. Uh, but we, we need to show kindness and goodness and gentleness and love to them anyways. We cannot do this on our own. We need to only do this according to your spirit. So fill us with your spirit and help us show grace. In your name we pray. Amen.